You're listening to the ASN Kidney News Podcast. Eric Dishman does healthcare research for Intel, studying technical and societal solutions for problems in care for the aging. He is also a kidney patient. He founded the product research and innovation team responsible for driving Intel's worldwide healthcare research, new product innovation, strategic planning, and health policy and standards activities. Dishman is also recognized globally for driving healthcare reform through home and community-based technologies and services, with a focus on enabling independent living for seniors. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, and Business Week, and the Wall Street Journal named him one of 12 people who are changing your retirement. In part four, Mr. Dishman discusses accountable care organizations, providing commentary as well as an overview of ACOs. Focusing for a second on the accountable care organization. First, if you could just sort of give your explanation, because I think one of the issues here is that it's the type of thing that everyone sees what they want to see, and so I'm curious as to how you would define it. And then I like your concept of differentiating between accounting and accountability. So if you could just touch on those two issues, I'd appreciate it. And an accountable care organization at its simplest definition is really about an organization of care providers coming together to care for, you know, we'll see what Medicare actually says, but, you know, some large number of patients, 5,000 or more, and their holistic care needs uh, over the course of, of a year or of, of, of multiple years, and paying for that care in a collective way where quality measurement and best practice care are going to be a key part of it. And, and then there are hundreds of permutations about how you can set up the governance and liability, and I'm not an expert on the governance and liability here, right, um, to sort of do this. You know, it's, it's really about team-based care. It's really about quality monitoring. It's really about enlisting all of the specialists and folks involved in these often complex comorbid cases, particularly for that sort of global aging population, and making sure that in our divide-and-conquer way of treating the body uh, as specialties and fields, we aren't doing damage to the whole because no one's aware what the other, other, other team members are sort of doing. And as somebody who's dealt with my own kidney problems and a range of other chronic conditions, I can just personally, I can tell you, I have been forced to become my own patient advocate because our system has not set things up such that I had a, a primary care champion governing and orchestrating these really complex uh, medications and regimens that I've been on. So I personally am yearning for this. I need this, right? I mean, there have been times where you know, I have been made sicker by medications I've been on just because of errors and problems that people weren't, the whole care team wasn't enlisted together and wasn't incentivized to sort of work together in a way. So an accountable care organization is, is about being accountable for holistic care needs of the patients. And you need a large population because you'll never achieve the cost envelopes that you sort of need. You'll never be able to sort of have a viable business model and a thriving business model and a sustained business model if some of that population aren't well during the course of that year. So, I mean, that, you know, that's it at its sort of heart. There's lots of sort of versions of it, and there's, there's lots of experiments. The reason I'm excited about that model is that it opens the door to the kinds of innovations that we've been working on. And, and while I would love for Intel stock to do well as a result of this, you know, I'm more motivated by my passionate belief based on the pilots and experiments that we have done with patients around the world that these distributed care paradigms, these in-home systems, are miraculous in some cases. And making a chemotherapy patient so that they can confidently get their chemotherapy regimen in their home 
without having to travel to a hospital in the midst of an H1N1 crisis when their immune count is low is game-changing for them, is potentially life-saving for them, not to mention a tenth of the cost for doing the care in the home compared to what it was in the hospital environment. So the ACO framework in its philosophical level and its definitional level is pretty exciting. We could screw it up if we just put all of the financial resources back into the hands of the insurance companies and payers and not into the hands of the physicians and clinical teams, which is the intent and spirit behind ACOs, then we'll just do HMO experiment part two, and it will probably fail. If we hold to the notion uh, in the spirit and intent of ACOs as enabling and insisting upon coordinated, collective, community-based care, and rewarding that behavior and creating financial incentives where clinicians can survive and thrive as businesses within that rubric, then we're going to do something amazing. And, you know, the devil's going to be in the details as as we unfold uh, and go through this. The ACO concept in particular has the potential to address your incentive problem and possibly to address the imagination problem because it creates a different framework. The concern I have is a workforce issue, which is do we have enough physicians, nurses, and other providers in the system to successfully handle all of the patients, especially if everyone has insurance from day one? And and even before the reform bill was passed, there were concerns about the physician workforce in all specialties, including nephrology. You know, what happens five, six, ten years down the line? I am spending more and more of my time trying to sort of think about the business process change and the workflow redefinition than anything else that I spend my time on right now. I mean, you're you're at the sort of heart of the issue. My concern about ACOs, aside from when they come into being, do they hold to the spirit and intent of, of them of really putting accountability, but also power and responsibility into the hands of of clinicians, which is where I think it needs to be. My concern is right now, the folks who are going out and doing early ACOs or piloting these things are very kind of campus-centric and very clinician-centric in their mentality. And, And what I mean by that is They're so worried about building their electronic health record infrastructure and their information exchange infrastructure to make sure that everybody on that small clinic or on that big hospital campus are connected, which is certainly a necessary precondition to doing some of the future virtual care we're talking about. But they're so focused on the campus that they're kind of forgetting about the community. And this kind kind of comes full circle to where you and I started talking about patient advocacy. If the ACOs, first of all, aren't including all of the stakeholders of care, including the specialties and the social workers and long-term care. A lot of the ACOs are are not even including long-term care facilities and companies at the table, which I'm like, how are you going to achieve your cost savings and coordination goals if you can't actually deal with the transitions of, of seniors in and out of nursing homes, which today is so literally deadly and costly? Um, so a lot of them are so kind of hospital-centric and acute care-centric that they're not thinking about all the other kind of modalities of care that need to be at the table and the other organizations that need to be at the table as they form their ACO in the community. But they're also not addressing the workforce issue that you've just identified. I don't think there's a scenario. I mean, we should do all that we can to incentivize people to go into these specialty fields and to go into primary care and geriatrics and so forth. But I don't think we're going to catch up with the demographic age wave. If we don't 
develop an ACO strategy and tools to empower and insist that patients become more advocate and, you know, sort of self empowered to sort of manage their own care. And if we don't leverage the family, family and, and friends using IT tools and training programs, if we don't find interesting ways to tap into volunteers and community health workers and offload and delegate and do team-based care, we're not going to be able to achieve these things. I mean, we, it's lean engineering principles that Intel uses apply to care. You want highly trained nephrologists to operate at the top of their degree, and you want the nurses to operate at the top of their degree, and you want to offload when appropriate and skill shift to lesser trained sometimes paid, sometimes unpaid volunteers to sort of augment the care system. If you're not developing an ACO strategy, a workforce strategy, and then looking at what IT infrastructure and other kinds of infrastructure you need to support that paradigm, I think the ACOs will form and you'll achieve some amazing cost savings in the first few years because you'll see all these low-hanging fruit opportunities of medication reconciliation and so forth, and you'll get a nice savings blip but you won't be able to sustain those savings in the global aging wave if you don't really form a new social covenant between the patients, the, the professional care teams, and the, and the informal care teams. That's what ACOs are going to ultimately have to achieve if they're going to be successful. And that's hard. That's behavior change. That's culture change over a longer period of time. Just as an aside, one of the challenges we're dealing with is, you know, the ACO concept is really seen as a primary care based, and there's a movement within nephrology to have a renal ACO, so yeah. I don't know if that's something – I just think that's an interesting sort of aspect of this. I didn't want to sort of put you on the spot on, but just to let you know that that's sort of a debate that's being internally had within the community. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't know how to settle that debate. I do know that if, if nephrologists and renal care providers aren't part of the ACO mix, then we're not going to truly achieve an ACO. I don't know if the right way to do it is to have one that's driven from a – an ACO model, or it's just to earn a seat at the table with all the sort of, you know, primary care ACOs. I, I, you know, there's different pros and cons to each, but it's pretty clear ACOs aren't going to work if they're really only focused on primary care. If there's not a seat at the table in a way, for bluntly, for, for the specialist to sort of make money and survive and thrive as a profession, uh, then, then clearly these things won't, these things won't work and it won't be sustainable. Well, Mr. Dishman, thank you for joining us for today's discussion. Thank you. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology. All rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. The information in this podcast should not be used during a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified health care provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.